Today we're talking with Dr. Amina McLeod, a scholar of Islam, professor of religious studies and director of Islamic World Studies program at DePaul University. Her areas of expertise include Islam in America, Muslim women, Islamic studies and the history, geography, politics, religion, and philosophy of Islam. She is the author and co-author of several books, including African-American Islam, Questions of Faith, Transnational Muslims in American Society, and An Introduction to Islam in the 21st Century. Dr. McLeod is also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Islamic Law and Culture and a member of the Board of Advisors of the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. Professor Ali Asani of Harvard University has described Dr. McLeod as one of the most eminent scholars of African-American Islam. Today, we're talking with her about an epidemic in society, and she's approaching it in a unique way. Bullying. It has gained the attention of school districts, police departments, and presidential administrations. It's at the root of school suspensions, fatal violence in the workplace and schools, suicides and stress. With shows like 13 Reasons Why, America is paying attention. So today we are pleased and honored to have Dr. McLeod with us to talk about her inventive and paradigm-shifting approach to dealing with the problem that has plagued society. All right. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. McLeod. Wa alaikum salam. You um, are embarking upon a, a much-needed uh, endeavor right now, uh, and that is you are looking to combat bullying in a really innovative way that I don't think we've seen before, or at least not from the, uh, from the perspective uh, that you're addressing it. First off, I want to ask you, what made you decide, uh, what was the impetus for you to go into this project? Well, that's not one of your questions, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, the impetus came from just watching the reports of kids committing suicide, going into severe depression from either uh, what is more... Uh, definitively called bullying or from shaming, mm -hmm. uh, watching the news report, uh, reading uh, pieces of Malik Mujahid's uh, Sound Vision newsletter alerts, uh, newsletters that come out talking about the numbers of Muslim kids being released. And it's not that it's uh, something that we don't know, but it's not also something that we pay much attention to. So in thinking about how, uh, looking across, especially Chicago, but across the nation at the programs, some of which are run by um, universities, and what they have uh, students do typically is there are um, discussion groups and they're mostly uh, targeted toward um, the perpetrators uh, who have some behavior disorder or not, or they're targeting victims to get them to build uh, self-esteem and uh, self-confidence through counseling. Okay. So you mentioned that most of these efforts, they target the perpetrator or the victim. Yeah. Um, so your approach 
it it represents somewhat of a paradigm shift in this area. Um, for, well, for it does. Uh, one, well, at least one part of it. There are also technological um, efforts which work on gaming, but not with an ethical building uh, cohort. And so what my colleague and I, my colleague is a professor in game design in a different college than mine at DePaul University. And what we looked at was if we tried to think of what seems to be at, what, at, at the core of these kinds of tendencies, what could we come up with? And one of those things was lack of impulse control. Mm -hmm. as we see in our government today <laughs> and around uh, whether it's newscasters or uh, oh I don't know anchors a lot of lack of impulse control so we try to think about what causes that is it low self-esteem uh, lack of confidence uh, it's what everybody else is doing so I will do it too Oh, and who were they targeting? Well, those with that they could target, um, actually. Then we thought about how does that violence escalate to death mm. in the shootings around Chicago, etc. And what we came up with was there was a lack of ethical competency. Uh, typically, ethical competencies are first built in the home, where parents have loads of things that they teach you as you're growing up, such as uh, you're not going to win all the time, right. uh, how to cheer on your uh, brother or sister or your friend in an effort that they're, you know, where they're trying to achieve without it having anything to say about whether you can do it or not. Um, just a lot of ethical competencies that have always been built in the home, which we were finding when we did some research, are no longer built at home because now children are taught that they're geniuses from birth and that everything they do is perfect and to be rewarded. So when children meet... Uh, I don't want to call it failure, but the fact that they don't always win, that they may not always get an A, they may not always get the office bonus as they grow into adults, they don't have the reservoirs of competencies, ethical ones, to deal with them. So we focused in on building ethical competencies and we decided that we would do it through designing a game, an analog game, better known as a board game, through which we build them uh, discreetly over time, but very deliberately. Okay, so in this idea of ethical competencies and uh, addressing this, this issue of a bullying in a way, that produces uh, ethical leadership. Uh, I think you. I think that is that that is the overarching um, result, 
right, of this, of the program. Is that correct? Yes. Well, we, we thought we could, in a number of camps run around the city, and as many years as we have resources to support it, uh, for school-age young people, build uh, ambassadors. And for businesses and other places where they have diversity training, et cetera, help folk learn better how to handle harassment and discrimination because bullying is harassment and discrimination also. It's just there's an adult form and a language for adults, and then there's bullying. And when you think of bullying, you think of uh, younger people. Right. But they're all the same thing. They'll just grow into adults who don't have ethical competencies unless there's an intervention. Right. And there's no so there's really no real difference between <coughs> bullying in the adult sphere versus the adolescent uh, stage of life. No, especially uh, with regard to various kinds of harassment uh, and discriminations or even the cyber bullying or shaming. Children do it, adults do it. Okay, so there's a societal, uh, well, can you talk about the societal costs of bullying? Uh, you mentioned lack of impulse control, and that, yeah. you know, that's pretty much, you know, we see that every single day with the, the tweets that are coming out and with the, the quick responses and anger uh, and the fact that it's coming from you know, our commander in chief, uh, I think this should be something that's, you know, it's on everybody. It should be on everybody's radar right now. So how uh, is this, uh, is this program also a way to educate the partic uh, participants about the potential societal cost of it? Well, they, they hear and read about the cost uh, on the television uh, far too often. Uh, in suicides, the kid gets attacked in the bathroom, and um, the principal ignores it, sends the kid home sick, and the kid is later found uh, dead of injuries, or the kid who can't take it anymore and hangs him or herself. Uh, you see, the cyberbullying is epidemic, especially... Uh, at the college level and at the adult level, uh, where you have the, the shaming has all kinds of costs. And we in the Muslim community see it in, uh, I think the most recent kind of nationwide effort was against Hamza Yusuf, who made some remarks off the cuff at uh, a conference in Canada last uh, winter. Mm -hmm. The efforts at shaming cost people their jobs and their livelihoods and careers when they are effective and led by people who have venues where they can get their shaming stuff in. And, you know, social media provides such a venue. Right. Uh, for young people, it's all over the board in what the content of the cyberbullying is. The young kids don't do too much of the cyberbullying, but they do use Snapchat and some other things to do a little bit of shaming. Right. Uh, but mostly their bullying is up close and personal. 
sometimes that bullying results in a death as a kid retaliates against uh, remarks or uh, perceived in slights or, or insults to themselves or to family members and go back home, get guns, and go shooting. And we've seen loads of instances of that, far too many. Right. Muslim kids, in particular as a group, are shamed in a number of ways, the girls because of the scarves on their heads or the other things that their parents demand, that they make demands of their teachers and administrators and boys and girls because of their names or perceived places of origin. So you have uh, lots of reasons for the bullying, but the bullying sometimes uh, uh, escalates and the very trad the most tragic result of which is death uh, but the intermediate and also severe consequences revolve around um, attempted suicide uh, anorexia bulimia uh, severe depressions so uh, let me ask this question because this is as I mentioned uh, at the outset, that this is really uh, a paradigm shift in dealing with bullying and that one of the or the, the main outcome is producing uh, the participants uh, developing ethical uh, leadership, uh, ethical leadership skills. So are you as far as it as far as it relates to the participants, are the participants victims or um, or offenders, or are they, you know, uh, does it, does it matter? It can be either. The game, just to give you an overview of the game, mm -hmm. the game works kind of like Monopoly mm -hmm. in that they are spinning a wheel, uh, moving uh, steps, and uh, the first uh, bunch of steps they will take will be to choose a scenario. And we've written up some. They will also write up some because in addition to building ethical competencies, we're teaching game design at a very fundamental level, but game design, which will enable them to play already uh, published games better, but to have to build some competencies and confidence in game playing, but to also uh, get a skill which we're hoping for the high schoolers that they will pursue in college as STEM majors uh, or computer science majors with a focus on gaming and those kinds of things. But they will play the game, choose a scenario. And whatever scenario they choose, they have to choose then and go back, spin again, and they will go to a pile of action cards. And they are going to choose an action to do in response to the scenario they've chosen. After choosing an action, then they will spin again. This is like really abbreviated. Mm -hmm. um, and they will pull from a stack of consequences cards and have to figure out again how then what action to choose, you know, and this is played in a, in a group of two to four. 
And so what they're learning is that you you are confronted all the time with scenarios. It is you that is going to make a choice about which action you're going to take to deal with that scenario. And then you're going to, our job, what we've created, is a series of unintended consequences of the actions you've chosen. And, you know, the game has uh, levels and rounds, and you'll find that there are consequences, and those consequences have consequences by the further actions you choose. And you can wind up just in a really bad place. But then when you play the game again, you will make, you'll have maybe some of the same but different scenarios, but you will choose your actions more wisely because now you're introduced to the concept that your actions have consequences. This is not, you can't always act impulsively. You've got to look down the road a little bit. So this is definitely involving the development uh, or the exercise of executive decision. Huh. Um, and I mentioned that because I know as it relates to male development in particular, it said it said that the 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 portion of the brain that's responsible for executive decision or long term or consequential thinking doesn't finish developing until 25. Well, in most men, I would give that a 40 years <laughs> But um, So this kind of gives perhaps. them a jump start. <laughs> so, so we have a commander-in-chief who has no impulse control, <laughs> and he's 70. Right. So, you know, 40 is being generous. But, but the, my point is that this program, <laughs> uh, this type of, of, of training and, and, and rigor, uh, that it seems like it would give a jump start to adolescent youth in particular because you said you're dealing with high school, high school age uh, uh, students. Uh, well, we're hoping and perhaps listeners will join me in the development of this project. Mm -hmm. uh, we're hoping to have a, a camp of college-age students, mm -hmm. and we're hoping to have some adults play because it's the intergenerational interaction that is also exceptionally important. It's also gender interaction. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those things are critical. And because students, we've tried to give them some semblance of privacy by at the very beginning of, of this two-week game camp for these high schoolers, it won't be for adults and others, it'll be like a weekend a day, mm -hmm. um, we're having them work through avatars. And they're going to choose avatars with particular personality traits and particular uh, physical appearances. Well, let, let me ask this. So with this ethical leadership, these mm -hmm. ethical leadership skills that are that the uh, participants that they come out of the program with, how will they utilize them? Well, what we will have arranged for uh, students is we will, we have a team, mm -hmm. another team, that is uh, consulting with principals and administrators in the schools from which they come. And those students will go back and, and be designated ambassadors to mediate potential 
um, areas of conflict. Okay. So we will be monitoring them and their mediation abilities for the next school year. That's awesome. So that would that be strictly peer-to-peer mediation? Not necessarily, because they've also uh, got to learn how does one mediate between an adult and a student without offending the adult or, you know, pumping up the student, but they're, they're, they hopefully will be trained to mediate the situation, not the individual. Did you see what I'm saying? Yes. yes. Right. So that there's not an offense because the perpetrators of bullying and shaming, especially in the school system, are teachers, they're administrators, they're staff, you know, whether it's the woman in the cafeteria or the janitor who don't stop a fight because, for example, in one instance across my desk, uh, some kids were jumping on a uh, Muslim boy, and the janitor saw it, and I don't know if it was because the boy had a kufi on or he knew of him or what, or if he was told, but he didn't intervene. Mm. Uh, We've had teachers fired from their jobs because they were the bulliers of Muslim kids in class and administrators who tried to stick up for the teachers as opposed to seeing the situation. So it's not necessarily peer-to-peer and we're hoping to bring the administrators and the principals of these places, especially where there are targeted groups like Muslim students into the mix. Okay. So you mentioned that this program allows for victims as well as perpetrators uh, to to, to partake. And those who don't feel that they're a victim or a perpetrator and have usually been bystanders. Right. So, well, this this leads to my other question. Uh, Or my next question is how are you selecting uh, the participants uh, is it is it through the we school will, or, yeah um, we're working on that we okay. don't want all kids that are have behavior disorders or this and we don't want a bunch of victims we want a mixture of them and kids who feel that they have never been bullied or never been victimized we wanted a healthy kind of classroom uh, you know, like mimicking a classroom, right? Where you have some of everybody in there. Yeah. Okay. All right. And we're working very hard to make sure that there's a diversity of ethnicities, at least, but also a diversity of religious background. Well, you just answered another question because we <laughs> talked about a particular demographic about you know the the Muslim. Yeah, but Muslim kids go to school with everybody. Yeah, yeah. This is true. Yeah. This is true. So uh, let me ask. I've got uh, two two more questions uh, that are bubbling in my in my brain. What is the the draw or the attraction for students to participate in this type of a uh, this type of activity? Well, for one, it is learning game design, <laughs> okay. and everybody wants to learn game design. I don't know that. Uh, maybe by the time you're a junior, senior in high school, you know what it is. But when you say gaming, everybody's up for it. Right. Um, two, we will 
provide them with uh, tablets at the end of the, the camp uh, that they can, you know, go home to their homework on or whatever. Sure. Uh, we're also engaging DePaul in this and that one of the days they will spend at DePaul uh, being on a college campus, learning what enrollment looks like, what registration looks like, what the various um, colleges look like. And we're also kind of um, making a plea to DePaul to provide some partial scholarships for the students who complete the camp. So, so hopefully that's enough. I don't know. You know, I can't say money stuff. We're still begging. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let me ask you this uh, before we, before we uh, uh, get out your hair. Uh, what is the intended start date? How soon could this program be up and running? It could be in its initial um, camp uh, next summer. Okay. We are writing for grants now. We would love for the Muslim community, uh, especially those college students and graduate students majoring in game design or gaming or computer science to join us in the project. But we need a lot of support. Right. Uh, it costs money to put on the camps because we're feeding kids every day. Um, one home for uh, the camps will be at Iman, which many know in the city. Uh, we're, we have to come up with money or a, a large donation of tablets from somebody. You know, we're trying to get as much community support as possible to match uh, the hopefully successful grants that we're writing. Okay. So how can listeners, how can listeners support where, you know, if they want to make a financial contribution, how would they go about doing that? Um, if they want to make a financial contribution, that I'll have to find out. They need to send me an email at a McLeod. Uh, at DePaul.edu because those financial contributions, we have to arrange a special account for them. Okay. Would you repeat your email once again? A. McLeod, A-M-C-C-L-O-U-D, at D-E-P-A-U-L.edu. We have to create a special account for those who are graduate students or professionals in game design or something that wish to bring their extraordinary talents into the project to help us make this the best project possible, send me an email to the same email. Uh, we need uh, community support bolsters our grant writing because we have to write for internal grants to get the students uh, to work on our preparation for the rollout. Mm-hmm. And we need uh, game design professionals and game design graduate students to please, please come on board and assist us because we want to write for some other much larger national grants because our end goal, in an end goal, <laughs> is to turn this analog game uh, into a digital game so that they're both available. Okay. 
and to be able to have the game itself available for uh, schools to purchase. Okay. Well, this is like I said uh, at the at the outset. This is a real paradigm shift, and uh, this it sounds really exciting. Um, so you mentioned that it's going to eventually work its way into a digital format. So, uh, yeah, we're definitely looking forward to seeing that. And we thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, is there anything before we go? Is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with? Huh? That our, our creative impulses, et cetera, are only as good as the people that support them. And we would hope that, uh, this sounds good enough, uh, and we can certainly come and talk about it to groups, mm-hmm. uh, that we would find overwhelming support. The violence has got to stop on all of the levels, psychological, emotional, and physical, that it happens. And one of the ways to do that is to build ethical competency so that folk learn that when they meet circumstances, and they do, uh, all of their waking hours, that they have a toolkit of actions that they can take, knowing a little bit about all the consequences of the actions that they choose. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us uh, and our listening audience. And we definitely are praying for the success of this program. We hope the folks that are listening, that they reach out and that they support it. And we look forward to uh, to everyone benefiting from this work. So thank you once again for joining us, Dr. McLeod. And we uh, we leave you with the greetings that we greeted you with. And that is assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you. Today in school, I learned a lot. In chemistry, I learned that no one likes me. In biology, I learned that I'm fat and stupid. In English, I learned that I'm disgusting. And in gym, I learned that I'm pathetic and a joke. The only thing I didn't learn in school today is why no one ever helps. Kids witness bullying every day. They want to help, but they don't know how. Teach them how to stop bullying and be more than a bystander at stopbullying.gov. A message from the Ad Council. Hey, America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. We got extra food and we got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America in your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, 
the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show, produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. On Monday, June 26, 2017, the Supreme Court allowed part of the Trump administration's travel ban to take effect. Although this was a revised version of the original executive order, it was still seen by many Americans as simply a Muslim ban, a legal manifestation of the proudly anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant rhetoric candidate Trump had ridden to the presidency the prior year. As recently as September 7th, just a few days ago, Parts of the order were again challenged and narrowed in a U.S. appeals court. A few days after the Supreme Court's June 26th ruling, we contacted Aziz Huck, professor of law at the University of Chicago, specializing in civil rights, constitutional law, and national security. Our Olivia Richardson interviewed Professor Huck, hoping to get some clarification on the issue. What follows is a recording of that interview. Can you tell us about your position at the University of Chicago and what areas you focus on specifically? Uh, I teach at the University of Chicago Law School, uh, where I am responsible for constitutional law, criminal procedure, and a number of other classes uh, about uh, how uh, either Congress or the executive run. Cool. So the Supreme Court allowed some parts of the travel ban to take effect. Can you explain what the Supreme Court's ruling was about? Like, was the decision final, and why is the same issue is the same issue going to be up for review again, or why is it going to be up for review again in the fall? Sure. Uh, so, what the Supreme Court did was review orders from two federal courts of appeals, which had granted something called preliminary injunctions against the travel ban. What a preliminary injunction is is basically a order that requires a party to do or not do something while the litigation is in progress. It's not the same as a final judgment on a particular uh, question of law. Uh, what the Courts of Appeals had said is that because the plaintiffs who were challenging the travel ban were likely to win, they were entitled to preliminary injunctions that uh, entirely blocked its core components, the, the bar on uh, the entry of people from six countries and the prohibition on, on refugee resettlement. Now, what the Supreme Court did last week was to say that the preliminary injunctions were overbroad. What it, what it said is that, that there's a distinction between the people who can challenge the ban and the people who can't challenge the ban. And as for those people who have what the court called a bona fide, a real relationship to the United States, the injunction remains in effect. But for everyone else, the injunction lapses and then the ban springs back into life. And indeed, the travel ban for everybody except 
those who have a bona fide relationship to the United States is now back in, in effect. What will now happen is that the court has said we will hear the actual case itself in October. But as the court noted, the travel ban itself is, is only good for 90 days. The order itself describes itself as a, uh, a temporary measure. And because the travel ban has already gone into effect, it will elapse because the 90 days will expire just before the Supreme Court is due to hear the case. And so is there any evidence that it makes the country safer? No. Um, in fact, quite uh, the opposite. So uh, when the administration withdrew the first travel ban and uh, prepared to issue a new travel ban, it went to the Department of State and the Department of Homeland Security and said, please produce analyses that support the policy position we're going to take, which is something that administrations do all the time. That's not, that's not illicit in any way. But what then happened was that both the Department of State and the Department of Homeland Security produced analyses looking at uh, who is charged or alleged to have committed a terrorism offense and what their nationality is and when they entered. Um, and, and both of those analyses showed that there's no correlation between nationality and in particular these nationalities and uh, terrorism risk. So uh, there's, there's actually no evidence that this uh, makes the country any safer. Um, and, and if anything, uh, the, given the fact that terrorist groups recruit by pointing to policies that uh, these groups say are uh, evidence of Western hostility to Muslims or to Islam, uh, given, that, given that that is a key talking point in terrorist recruitment, um, the odds are that by promulgating precisely such a policy that makes the uh, terrorist propaganda look more credible, the travel bans have the effect of diminishing security in the medium term. Hmm, okay. And the Trump administration has claimed that the decision was a victory um, and somewhat of a validation of their policy agenda. So is their view accurate? It's certainly true that what the Supreme Court did was to allow the travel ban in most of its applications to go into effect. But at the same time, the court didn't rule that what the, uh, the, the Trump administration uh, had done was lawful. Indeed, quite the contrary. It, it's a necessary assumption in their decision to uphold part of the travel ban, that there is a strong legal argument for the ban's invalidity. So uh, it's quite possible to look at the, tra the, the court's order and to claim victory for the Trump administration, uh, but it's also possible to look at the order and say, ah, but this is a court that, that didn't just say administration go full steam ahead. It, 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 carefully picked out a class of cases where it thought the legal case was strongest against the ban and said, uh, we uphold the preliminary injunction. The other important thing to say is that the effect of the, the ban lapsing 
just before the Supreme Court hears the case, is that um, the court has basically created a way for it to get out of a confrontation with the president. Because it mm. can say the ban has elapsed, the 90 days have elapsed. Uh, if there's some continuation of that 90 days, if there's some continuation of the order, there has to be a new executive order. And if there's a new executive order, the court can say to plaintiffs, go back to the beginning and litigate the validity of this third executive order. So the, the court, and, and it, this is quite clear from the text of the Supreme Court's opinion, the court has given itself a way of avoiding a confrontation with the president. That's the other thing that's going on. Cool. Um, So in the long run, what does the ruling mean for Muslims in the U.S.? Well, I I think the most important thing is the the kind of campaign rhetoric and the the acts of private hatred and private uh, uh, bigotry uh, that followed it and the, um, the prospect that uh, new policies would be enacted on the basis of the same kind of discriminatory uh, animus. I, I think that the, the Supreme Court has not made it any less likely that we will see uh, bigoted campaign speech in the future. Indeed, there's a, there's a throwaway line in the Supreme Court's opinion to the effect that courts can't rely on campaign speech to prove bad intent. Uh, and so, so that that is it's not a green light, but it's but it's certainly a yellow light to politicians who want to obtain office by pandering to people's worst instincts. I, I think that the um, that although the court may well hasn't hasn't done all that much, one of the things that it has signaled is that it doesn't want to confront uh, the president. And that's not that's not a new thing. Courts have actually, all, the, the Supreme Court has always been reluctant to confront the president in particular. This is, this is true all the way back to the 1800s. Uh, and courts have found ways to kind of duck and weave and avoid full-on confrontations, even when the justices believe that there's a, a, a substantial violation of the law. Um, but, but one of the effects of, of that kind of ducking and weaving is that because presidents can anticipate courts' reluctance to confront them, they become more willing and eager to push the envelope as far as the Constitution goes. So I, I fear that, that although the effect of this, I think, is not great, and certainly as legal precedent, there's not that much in it, um, the signal that this sends from the court is only likely to elicit further discriminatory rhetoric or action. Okay. So I was going to ask, does this ruling set any new precedents? Um, so would that be sort of what you think possibly? I, I, don't, I don't read it um, uh, as, as saying all that much. I, I think one could, one could make something of the fact that there's this uh, refusal to, to look at campaign speech. But even on that point, I, I think a, a, a future court could say, well, this court didn't really consider it, it didn't brief this question, it didn't think about all of the consequences, and and that's not really good law. So um, I I, I think that there's not much here by way of precedent. Um, It's really the effect of the decision as a signal 
to the executive branch and its decision makers that really matters. And so the ACLU had some early success um, in using the president's previous statements to demonstrate that he was actually de- uh, was actually a deliberate Muslim ban and therefore unconstitutional. So why didn't the Supreme Court seem concerned with that? Well, the Supreme Court didn't hear argument on the question. So they, they simply, uh, without argument, said, we're not going to pay attention to campaign statements. Um, and, and it's important to say that it wasn't just the, the, the ACLU. There, there, there are a great number of organizations um, challenging uh, or involved in challenges to, uh, to the ban. Uh, and, and several of the, the states. So, so one of the most important, uh, one of the first cases was brought by the state of Washington. Uh, there's another important case brought by the state of Hawaii. Uh, I'm involved in litigation that's been brought by um, the, the organization Muslim Advocates, uh, along with the Southern uh, Poverty Law Center. Uh, so, so you're, you're right to so say the ACLU had some, had some traction with this. Um, but it's, it, this is really an argument that's been developed by, by many, many different uh, organizations and advocacy groups uh, and, and uh, states. The Supreme Court is likely to get more conservative in the next few years, especially if Justice Kennedy and Ginsburg retire. So what does that mean for civil liberties in the future? Well, I, I don't know if there'll be retirements in the near term. And, you know, once you're past the next... Uh, uh, the next midterm elections. I mean, you know, who who gets appointed, and, um, and and whether there are appointments really does depend upon what direction the Senate goes in. And um, you know, if you're worried about the effect of changing um, appointments to the Supreme Court, then you really ought to be getting out and donating to Senate candidates who are going to uh, do the right thing in that regard. Um, you know, if and when there are changes, let, let's say there were changes to the court, and, and that one or one of the centrist or liberal justices uh, was was appointed, um, I, I do think that there would be. Um, I think I, I think that policies that impinged on Muslim American civil liberties would be far less likely to receive careful attention from the court. I think that's that's almost certainly the case. I think there are many other uh, policies uh, or areas of life that we all ought to care about, which will be, um, which will receive much less uh, uh, careful attention, including uh, the police's use of force and violence, um, uh, and equality rights more generally. So I, I, I agree with the idea that there's a likely change if there is a, a shift in the composition of the court. Although I. I um, wouldn't take that for granted. Okay, cool. Um, and you mentioned that you did some work on helping, I guess, in pre- previous attempts to uh, overturn the ban. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that? I, I've worked on an amicus brief with Muslim advocates that's been uh, filed uh, in every litigation since the, the very first uh, uh, iteration of the ban was challenged by the state of Washington. So we, we literally uh, wrote an amicus brief on the question of discrimination, on the evidence of discriminatory purpose on Trump's part, and on the relevant law uh, over the weekend after the ban came into effect and, and was, was working very closely with the state of Washington on the first iteration of the ban. Uh, we've, kept, we've kept working on that. We've kept filing that brief and updating it. Uh, but we also, Muslim Advocates also has a, a, a lawsuit uh, challenging the ban 
um, uh, along with the Southern Poverty Law Center as co-counsel uh, in the District of Columbia on behalf of an organization and a number of individuals. Uh, and that, that case is, is pending now, uh, waiting for the, the Supreme Court's holding. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's all the questions I have for you, unless okay, there's great. any more. Thank you. No, thank you. I, uh, best of luck with the rest of the show. to Radio Islam, a call-in talk show from 6 to 7 p.m. seven days a week on WCEV 1450 AM. To find out more about tonight's guests and their work, hop on to soundcloud.com slash Radio Islam USA, where you can also stream, download, and comment on our shows. You can also catch us on iTunes and Google Play and stream straight from your phone. Don't forget to rate and view our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at Radio Islam USA. The executive producer of Radio Islam is Abdul Malik Majahid. Your producers today have been Tariq Alameen and Ibrahim Baig.